You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Today is a book club wrap-up day, and this has been a really exciting book. We had a lot of very excited ladies in the Ladies Lounge when we announced that we were doing a C.S. Lewis book for the first time. Uh, A lot of anticipation for this one and participation, and uh, it's, it's been a good discussion of people who both loved it and hated it. So <laughs> Rachel, take this away. Yeah, I feel like we need to ex- explain the book just a little bit for the people yeah. who haven't read it and and didn't have the context. So a C.S. Lewis book, but not that one, whichever one you were thinking of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we chose to read his, uh, l- I want to say last novel, certainly yep. the most mature novel, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. And in this book, Lewis rewrites the ancient Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. In the original myth, Psyche is a mortal woman. She's devastatingly beautiful. And people start giving her the worship that they ought to give to Aphrodite. Aphrodite gets mad, says to her son, her boy Cupid, uh, go hit this girl with one of your arrows, make her fall in love with something absolutely hideous. And he goes on his way, depending on how it tells the story, either he saw her or he accidentally nicked himself with one of his arrows. But whatever happens, <laughs> he <laughs> he himself falls madly in love with the mortal psyche. And uh, going behind mom's back, he sets up this like shadow palace and makes it so that nobody will marry psyche. And her family thinks she's cursed and also blessed and whatever. And the oracle says, you got to sacrifice psyche. Go leave her up on a mountainside. Go away. It'll be fine. And so this being a, a, a pagan culture, they do. They take the beautiful girl up, chain her to the side of the mountain, and say bye-bye. And <laughs> Cupid is like, great, takes her off. <laughs> <laughs> they start to live happily ever after, but he has one condition, and that is everything is invisible. You can't see me. I'll only come visit you in the in the night, and you can never ask to see my face. Because he really doesn't want his mom figuring out what he's done. So, (laughs) but Psyche gets kind of lonely. She's got these sisters who in the original myth are both married to very mortal, ordinary kings. And she asks if they, if her sisters can come visit and they, Psyche says, sure, that's fine. No, Cupid, Cupid says, sure, that's fine. So the sisters come up and they see all the glory and grandeur in which Psyche is living and they get kind of jealous, but they're kind of sus of her husband, her mysterious husband. And they're like, oh, obviously he's a monster. Why else would he not want you to see his face? Here, girl, we got your back. Here's an oil lamp. Tonight when he comes, just like, you know, light it, take a little look and it'll all be good. So that's what happens. Only while Psyche is holding the lamp over her really amazingly handsome god of a husband a drop of oil falls out burns him wakes him up and he's like oh shoot psyche why'd you have to do that now i've got to like you're you're banished i can't because my mom and it's complicated and so then psyche is off on quests at the worst mother-in-law ever 
her her mother-in-law Aphrodite basically says, you want to marry my boy? Here's some impossible tasks. And so she finally gets through all the impossible tasks with some help from Cupid and the other gods. And, and finally, Zeus steps in and says, okay, Cupid, you obviously love the girl. We'll bring her up to Olympus, make her a goddess. And so it's a very romantic story. And C.S. Lewis really loved this story. Uh, not surprising given its you know, parallels to the bridegroom and the bride, the mortal bride who is obviously unworthy of the bridegroom's affections, but he loves her so much anyway that he wants to bring her up into paradise with himself. And there's some real Christian, Christian uh, parallels here. So Lewis decides to write this book that takes apart the Cupid and Psyche myth, but he tells it from the perspective of one of Psyche's sisters, mm. which is honestly not the direction I would have gone with this because when <laughs> I re- <laughs> when I read this book for the first time um, 15 or 20 years ago, I was so excited. I was like, I love C.S. Lewis. I love Narnia. I love this this space trilogy. I love, you know, Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters and all these great Lewis books. And I picked up Till We Have Faces and my first reaction was, what? <laughs> Toto, I don't think we're in Narnia anymore. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and leave it to C.S. Lewis to take one of the most romantic stories ever devised and pull out like 99% of the romance. Uh, mm. So as a young woman, I found that just a little a little disappointing. But hmm. now that I'm an <laughs> older woman uh, than I was, I really, <laughs> really, really appreciated this book. And I'm so glad I came back around and read it at this stage in my life. And I'm going to have to do it again you know, in another 10, 15 years, because I think I'll get even more out of it. This mm-hmm. this choice to write the story from the perspective of Psyche's big sister, who absolutely adores her or thinks she does, and then has to grapple with the fallout of having her sister married to a god. And, and what this means for her is just an amazing, deeply psychological, deeply spiritual book. And um, we have had a lot of fun talking about it. But that's what I thought. I'm going to open it up to you guys. What did you guys think of Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold? So I also reread this book this time after having read it first several years ago. I don't remember how long ago it was, but I read it again. I did not like it. I still did not like it. Straight out I didn't of the like it the first time, and I didn't like it the second time. That's why we love um, it. I can appreciate it, and I I <laughs> can see like I'm like yes, it is a good book. This morning in particular, I was like, okay, we're gonna be talking about this. You got to come up with some way to like crystallize more of what it is. Why why didn't why didn't I like it? And here's what it is. So, yeah, I would rate it as a good book. I would. I just didn't enjoy it. And it's because I found it to be just such – it's such a sad book. Like, Mm -hmm. for almost the entire book, it's just sad. And and so I just didn't enjoy it. And it's it's not even that – it's not that I only need to read happy books or anything, but the balance of this one – I felt just tipped so much into sad 
she was just unhappy her entire life mm. and her entire life is like 95% of the book. And so mm-hmm. it's just one giant unhappy tale is what it is. And Orwell, beautifully developed character. I could, I really resonated with her and identified, but again, so sad, unrelievedly sad. Yeah, it's kind of a wine reaction to it is. We've all known people like this. Mm. Um, (laughs) You know, people that you look back on their life story and you're like, wow, that was one tragedy after another. And you are as unbitter as you can be given the circumstances, but still that's so sad. But just because we all know that this is true doesn't mean that it's fun. This is not a fun book. And coming out of uh, so many of other so many others of C.S. Lewis's books that are just infused throughout with delight. Yeah. Uh this one yeah. you know, you're looking you keep looking for that that sense of delight, this joy. Uh right. and it's it's kind of hard to find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. Not everyone loved this book. <laughs> in fact, this was the book that, in, that more people than uh, than in any previous book came forward to actually <laughs> say, I didn't like it. Mm. I can't say why. I just didn't. <laughs> and I hope that's okay. And it is totally okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, I have very little patience for Oral personally. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, he is kind of a whiner, honestly. I do. Mm. Like, yes. I'm glad that you mentioned, Rachel, that, you know, she's she's gone through a lot. She's endured a lot. And so I'm reflecting on, like, her childhood growing up and, you know, sort of she's she's sort of endured this abusive childhood, you know, constantly being berated by her father and, you know, called ugly and and beaten, like physically beaten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess, like, I, I sympathize, but at the same time, I think w- with what Aaron is saying, a majority of the book, I just feel like it it was like just incessant, just lamenting. And it 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 was kind of a it was kind of a buzzkill. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and it's it's not it's not C.S. Lewis. It's not Narnia. I and. I don't read a whole lot of C.S. Lewis, and I know that I really should, as an official Lutheran, like, I should read it. <laughs> He's more. not Lutheran. Don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, <laughs> I have read the first three Narnia books, those being Magician's Nephew, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then Heresy. The Horse Boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but then I get to book four, and for some reason... Like I like you read such a weird order. You read the magician, the that's witch what, in the, the wardrobe, and then the horses boy. Yeah, that's, that's the, how the publisher the tells you to read you. them. Yeah. They went, oh, they went and remembered them too. chronologically. Yeah. So like, I read it that order too. So like oh, book four, I've gotten us off track. I historically, apologize. <laughs> I've stopped reading in the middle. Whether it's I got distracted and, and did something else. The last time I picked up book four. I was in the middle of it and it disappeared. Like the book disappeared. I <laughs> I don't know what happened to it. I'm like, what is this? Like, what are you trying to tell me, God? Like, what are you doing? But there is hope like threaded throughout those books. Like even, even when there is despair and the white witch and it's snows, but it's never Christmas. Like there's still, there's still glimmers and glints of hope throughout those stories that you really don't get here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a 
<laughs> no, you're you're right. It's a it's a book that calls into question. Well, I mean, if you if you look, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but if you look at the at the narrative above the narrative, you know, if you were to assess this story from a worldly perspective, you would mm-hmm. say this is a story of triumph. We have this woman who should not be ruling because she's a woman. She's ugly. She doesn't get married. She's, you know, and yet she becomes the best queen this country has ever had. She rises above all of her tragic childhood, the loss of her sister, the, you know, all of all of everything that she goes through and becomes this really, really wonderful queen to her people. And what this book says is, eh, that's worthless because her soul is not at peace and really calls into question our earthly narratives of what success Mm. looks like in a human life she's got everything Mm -hmm. she has she has you know transcended all of her struggles and become just this really powerful wonderful woman and yet it's not enough in the end it's it's all nothing vanity vanity Mm -hmm. all is vanity Mm -hmm. um and yeah that is a depressing thing for us to realize because we kind of want to buy into this this triumphant she's a queen and she's a good queen story but that's not her story. We need to have a retelling of the retelling. And it's going to be like a limited <laughs> HBO miniseries, like eight episodes. So yes. much fan fiction. So yes. much. Yes. Well, I mean, this is basically fan fiction. Lewis mm-hmm. loved the old myth and he's like, I'm going to write my yep. own version. Just so, like yep. us. Mm. All right, Sarah, you're up. So it's really funny that you said all of that right before I tell you what I thought about this book because I love <laughs> this book partially because yes. of her story. <laughs> I loved, I mean, I love books with strong women protagonists. That's just kind of a thing. Um, You know, all of the World War II resistance stuff that I read, most of it is women in the resistance because I love those stories. But I loved also that tension between her being very successful and her being a really good queen and also being really unhappy. And I love, I really like psychological stuff like that, not in movies, but in books, <laughs> that that psychological tension of having an outwardly, what turns out to be a somewhat really good life, but at the same time, having all of this just stuff boiling under the surface and coming to the, all these realizations that, oh my, you know, yes, I'm I'm a good queen and I'm really good at what I'm doing, but my relationships are terrible. (laughs) And people see me totally differently than what I think. And those relationship tensions are, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating to me. I read this in audiobook as I normally do. And so maybe I missed some of the like really, really depressing stuff because I was imagining this world in my head as I was walking through Mm. woods. And like, it was a very, it was a very magical experience because I, I could see all of these things happening and and listening to it in a British accent was like really authentic. But it was weird going back to look in my actual paperback, answering questions and reading some stuff. And like, it felt so different reading it on the page mm-hmm. than it did listening to it. So I'm not sure I actually would have enjoyed it as much had I actually read the paperback because it, it felt very weird reading the words and like seeing the names of the places instead of having to kind of make up the world in my head as I was going mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I've never really felt that tension before in audiobook versus paperback, but I was, it was very 
clear in this one. When I bought the book, I wrote this in the group too. When I bought the book, the first thing I had to check was whether it was pillow room or pillar room because in a British accent, <laughs> pillow sounds like pillar. And I was so originally when I when we got to you know when they were introducing the pillow pillar room, I was like, oh, they're in this room full of pillows, and that's where she gets to do it. Like that is literally what I had in my head. And, then, and so when I found out it was actually a pillar room, I'm like, oh, that's a, that's so much less fun. But that's okay, <laughs> the the pillar room for the uninitiated is is the room full of pillars, not pillows, that is sort of the <laughs> throne room where the work of state is done in this in this fictional kingdom. And I love the idea of the, the king or queen and her advisors just lounging around on pillows. Lounging on pillows. <laughs> Giant sleepover. Uh, that's mm. what was in my head for a long time because I, yes. I that's what it sounded like. <laughs> I love it. I like, so like that. But, so all of these things that I... I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much if had I been reading it because I wouldn't have gotten those kind of m- amusing glimpses of things. And, you know, I had to make up how the names, the names of things I felt more than I saw, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. People's yeah. names, places' names, they all meant something different in my head because I, I was making up what the story was in my head instead of instead of letting the words kind of do that. I don't know. It was just... Mm. It was a very odd experience. I don't know which audiobook you read. I so I I too listened to the audiobook and if it's the, I think the funniest part about re, like listening to the audiobook if you're listening to the same one as I was so the fox so it's a British woman narrating yeah. the story. It's probably the same one. But the fox who is in the book sort of the Greek counterpart to the Glomian, sort of this this pagan, this barbarian race, so to speak. Mm-hmm. She she voices the fox as a Scotsman. I just yeah. thought that, that was so <laughs> just funny. Which is it's so fun. appropriate if you know <laughs> Lewis and his other characters who are just basically the fox. A lot of them are Scottish. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a recurring these- theme. All the, those those whimsical things that I think I, it, you kind of just miss if if you're reading the book that I think we caught in in the audiobook because because then you have these voices like as I was going back and reading through these passages of the books I I was actually hearing what I was reading in the voices that I heard in the audiobook so ten years from now when I reread the book again I'll do it in audio and get <laughs> even more it. out of it good <laughs> it was weird. Coming into this is a very, uh, I'm also a C.S. Lewis kind of newbie. I've only, I think I've also only read the first three books of Narnia and then I had to take a break and then I never, I need to go back to it now. Uh, And apparently maybe I won't even get through the fourth one. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But I think when I, and I don't really, I didn't really know the, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. I'm not really a Greek mythology person and I didn't read it before I read the book. So I had like zero backstory of what I was getting into. (laughs) So I, I saw, oh, C.S. Lewis, a myth retold. This must be from a Christian point of view. So ah! for the first maybe half of the book, I was like, what am I reading? What, <laughs> what, who are these gods? Like, there must be some Christian thing going, but there, but there isn't. <laughs> it was, it was a weird, very weird disconnect for a long time when I got into, and I loved the beginning of it. I jumped uh-huh. right into it. It was just, I felt really weird reading this, like, pagan god story oh yeah like, lewis completely commits to the time and place that he chose for this yes. book and the time and place are in a barbarian past with pagan gods really that are seriously actually you know 
there. So hopefully we'll circle back around to that question in Mm. a little while. But I think without further ado, what we normally do in these book club discussions is I ask each of you to choose one question from our online discussion. And I just want to take this moment to say thank you to all the women. We had 90 women come to our online book discussion of Till We Have Faces and a whole bunch of you brought the insights. Oh my goodness. So we had, I think, nine questions this time, a bit more than usual, but we had a lot to talk about. And I was so impressed and really, really blown away by the depth of insight that people brought to our discussions of this book. So if you have not joined us for Lutheran Lady Book Club discussion yet, be on the lookout for next time because this was a great, great time. But what I always do is I ask you guys to pick one question from the online discussion set that we can discuss at further length here on the podcast. So who wants to go first? I'm actually going to call an audible on this. Sorry. No offense. (laughs) That's all right. I'm taken, I think. (laughs) I reviewed the questions and I don't know that I had well-formulated enough answers (laughs) for those questions. So I was hoping, and maybe we can save this one for the end and we can like dive deep into the lovely questions, the very well thought out. Let's just do it. Do it now. What do you want? Saving it for the end. So I read this book and I know that, you know, obviously C.S. Lewis is very, like, he's a very faithful dude. Like, we know this. We know this from his writings. We know this from his life. Very faithful guy. And so I'm wondering if, as he's writing this culture, so to speak, if he's almost, I don't know, exaggerating what it would be like to live in sort of a pagan culture with pagan gods. and Because I think the most remarkable thing for me in this story, which is sort of the most significant lesson I think that I have learned, came to me when it was in part two of this book where Orwell finally has the opportunity to complain to the gods, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it just, you know, there's sort of this this theme interweaving through the story about beauty versus ugliness and how sort of being physically ugly, like literally, like to the point where you have to keep your face covered, ug- level ugly, like oogly. <laughs> how, that, how there is, and I'm going to use, I'm going to use a buzzword, how there is actual like privilege in being beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so what what I what got me thinking was this quote, and if you will just indulge me, I'm going to read it. This is from absolutely chapter three of part two, where she is, where Orwell is appealing to the gods, and she says, "Do you think we mortals will find you gods easier to bear if you if you're beautiful? I'll tell you that if that's true, we'll find you a thousand times worse." For then, I know what beauty does, speaking as Orwell. You'll lure and entice. You'll leave us nothing, nothing that's worth our keeping or your taking. Those we love best, whoever's most worth loving, those are the very ones you'll pick out. 
oh, I can see it happening age after age and growing worse and worse the more you reveal your beauty. The son turning his back on the mother and the bride on her groom, stolen away by this everlasting calling, calling, calling of the gods, taken where we can't follow. It would be better for us if you were foul and ravening. We'd rather you drank their blood than stole their hearts. We'd rather they were ours and dead than yours and made immortal. This quote stuck out to me. And what it really got me thinking about was the goodness of our God, the goodness of God, the father, the accessibility that we have to him through his son and beauty versus ugliness. Like that's, you don't have to be like Beyonce level (laughs) beautiful to, to receive God's favor, to sort of be his child. And so there are many instances throughout this book where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading these accounts of men interacting with gods and I'm like, man, I am so glad that we have a God <laughs> who is so faithful and so happy with his creation that, that what he has made is very good, that no matter what you look like, you are still capable of receiving the love that he has for his children, despite what the world might say about how you look, despite the verbal slings and arrows that you might get from family members. I mean, her, Oral's father was terrible, by the way. Like, he's yes. a dumb jerk. But, like, <laughs> we don't. And a very true to life uh, character from that time yeah. and place. <laughs> yeah. And so I it just, I think overall, it's a beautiful reminder that this is not the God that we serve. And that, and, and thanks be to him and that this is not yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> so the, the the beauty question and that quote were let's put those on the list of things Rachel wanted to ask but didn't have time yes. to the other things to I talk about. Figured. So I figured. <laughs> um, Oral is a very unreliable na- narrator when it comes to her own beauty. Never once do we get a specific description of whatever ugliness she possesses. We know that right. other people think that she's ugly, or at least she thinks that they think that they're she's ugly. We know her father comes out and he calls her hobgoblin. What a jerk! Um, <laughs> right. Terrible. Like wear the sack over your face. Okay. Yeah. We. I. I would take everything she says about her physical beauty with a grain of salt. Okay. We know that she finds power in in wearing basically a paper bag over her head for most of her life, but the only time she actually we actually get a description of her telling about. Her physical appearance is at the very end after she has basically been, you know, through the trial, every trial that the gods have given her, we see that she is psyche. She is as beautiful as psyche. And this is the, that, but that beauty is a gift. Psyche's beauty is a gift. She's born with it. You know, it is a gift. Oral's beauty is also a gift. It comes to her through a different, different avenue. But I think that that is... That is something to remember that physical beauty is not the most important beauty mm-hmm. and that all beauty of any kind is a gift, Yep, not something that is earned. When I hear that quote, though, and I'm so glad you read that one because I love mm. it, what I see is this is the complaint of the unbeliever mm. about mm. the believers in their life, hmm. that when someone becomes a Christian, 
they are changed from the inside out. They are made unbearably beautiful. And for someone on the outside looking in, this can, and you see this in families where, you know, you have some people who are Christians and some people who are not, this sort of tension of, it's not fair. They're loyal to, you know, they're they're the best version of themselves they've ever been, and yet they're less mine than they've ever been. Mm. That only by by rejecting what we had in common, that is to say, our connection to the world and to each other, do they become this beautiful thing. And Oral's complaint is, it's not fair. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it, I think we mentioned at one point in the online discussion, the word codependency. Um, Good word for this, her, yes. Like. Which I would define as the desire to be God to another person. You know, mm-hmm. codependency often comes up in discussions of addiction, where somebody is enabling an addict to continue in their self-destructive lifestyle. But I think what's mm-hmm. really at the heart of it is I want to rescue you. I want to be the person that you call when you hit rock bottom. I want to be God in your life. And that mm-hmm. is what Oral wants from Psyche. Here is this beautiful person, this thing of absolute beauty, and I want to be the god in her life, the one who Mm. saves her, the one who rescues her. And when Psyche says, no, I I have a god, and it's not you. I love you. I love you beautiful. And Psyche's love is, of course, more pure and beautiful than Orwell's. Mm. Mm -hmm. But she says, I love you so much, but I already have a god. That position is filled. Orwell cannot take it. It blows her world to pieces. And that is her ultimate grievance against the gods. And that I think is what she has to grow out of throughout Mm. the book. So yeah, great question. (laughs) Did that like help at all? (laughs) Yes, it did. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't pick one of the ones that was well-crafted. That's okay. Clear on that. They were lovely questions. I just- can't make intelligible answers to them. That's okay. That was a, that was a, again, that was on my wish list of things we could have talked about. And now we have. So I'm happy. <laughs> All right. Anybody else have a question? Well, along, along those lines, I was looking at both the question number three and then the discussion in question number three. And that's the one where you asked about how does this all work with Christianity? He's talking about pagan stuff. Why is there a pagan setting? What's the great Christian author doing mucking about with false (laughs) gods? Do we gain anything meaningful from this unexpected shift in perspective? Are there perhaps things those pious old pagans once knew that we've since forgotten? And in particular, in the discussion of that question, you said it's clear that Lewis was haunted by the idea that good-hearted pagans would be damned simply because they lived in a time or place without access to the gospel. And that aspect of the story is actually another thing that I I found myself really struggling with as I read it. And that, again, con- contributed to my, my general angst about the book. <laughs> Just because it did, like it, it has flavors of like universalism, and like I got that as well in some of the Narnia books, mm-hmm. particularly the Last Battle, and it would always make me uncomfortable. But at that point, I was I was able to like set it aside and be like, well, okay, it's it's not actually a theological treatise, so I don't it doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> but when I was already like depressed by the book, then I was like, and it's. <laughs> 
universalism unacceptable. <laughs> and so, yeah, I did. I did struggle with that because I don't know it. I had a hard time reconciling. Again, I I see where he's going with it, but I think that's something that I struggle with when, in general, maybe this is just a book preference thing for me, but if there's going to be theology in the book, I like it to be either blatant or absent. Mm. (laughs) If it's going to be subtle, then I want it to be good. You... I, if it's subtle and bad, then I'm like, no whoa, <laughs> that is, wow, no. And so that's that's something, I don't know, I, I struggle that's with okay. that. That's um, okay. You aren't um, a Lutheran by any chance, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Official Lutheran. <laughs> no, but that's that's one of the marks of, of Lutheranism, especially Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, you know, mm-hmm. thought is we like our doctrine pure. Yep. Like. Yeah. If it's going to be there, it better be right. And this book, I'm sorry uh-huh. to say, probably would not pass doctrinal review. I've said it <laughs> not before. Wrong. C.S. Lewis, not a Lutheran. A very good, very mm-hmm. thoughtful, faithful right. Christian man, but came at this, all of this from a different perspective than we have. And you're right. Universalism is absolutely one of the things that is happening in this book. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, whether you're reading it in The Last Battle or The Great Divorce or, you know, any of his works where it sort of peeks in, he's not committing to it fully. He's just saying, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I and that's why I think he does it in fiction rather than in his more overt doctrinal books. Often Christian universalism, where you see it pop up, it's always wrong, but it always comes from a place, in my experience, comes from a good heart. Someone who really has the heart of Jesus, who wants these people to be saved, even if these people don't really want to be saved themselves. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's obviously something that Lewis wrestled with and continued to wrestle with. And that's why I think I called in in my discussion, I called this a thought experiment. You know, can pagan mythology get you close enough? And because he, oh, man. Yeah, he obviously hurt to think about all of this, as we should all. Yep. You know, this is not not something that isn't painful to think about people who go to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and with that, I did find myself, though, for example, uh, <laughs> this week, one of my, one of the Bible readings for, for my just daily devotional reading was, was from Leviticus. <laughs> and it's the, I, I know, but it's the... It's where they're talking about the Day of Atonement yes. and what they are to do on the Day of Atonement. And they had the the whole thing about the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And so they bring the goat in and then they send the goat out into the wilderness and they're supposed to just leave it there. They don't see it die. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's similar to what they did here. They didn't actually sacrifice Psyche. They sent her out into the wilderness and assumed that she would be consumed by Azazel. But instead, it, it went a different way. But I was so, I was like, oh yeah, that's a there's a scapegoat element of it. And I think Steph Steph mm-hmm. Schulte in the in the group had commented that she remembered a class that she had had where a professor was attempting something, but. Ultimately, she she came down in her comment with, you know, we're, we are all descendants of mm-hmm. believers. And for whatever reason, that idea 
struck me in a different way than it has before. And the fact that there's these elements and it just never really clicked in my head, the idea that the reason there's these elements in cultures across the world where you see these tie-ins is because we are all descended Mm -hmm. from believers. Like you go back far enough and it is there. And so that the fact that so many so many cultures in history use sacrifice and it got twisted in a bad mm-hmm. way, well, that's our fallen sure. nature there. But it also comes out of the fact that that's the model that God put in place of how he was going to fix things is yeah. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And anyway, that, that I found to be very interesting. You're so right. And that Aww. one thing that, you know, when I asked the question, what did these pious old pagans know that we've forgotten? They knew that sin requires sacrifice and mm-hmm. not just any yeah. sacrifice. It needs blood. Yeah. It requires blood and the best yeah. blood you've got. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. you know, in, in yes. the... Hebrew tradition, you know, the Old Testament tradition, God has explicitly said, do not give me people, you know, Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, here, take a perfect male sheep, and this is what I want from you. But in places where that prohibition was not explicitly given, people just sort of realized there is nothing better we can give than human life. This is the pinnacle of creation. So if the gods want the best, Mm -hmm. we should give them the best. Mm. And I think we look back and we're like, how barbaric, how cruel, how awful is this? And yet, how close were they actually to the truth? Because what God demanded was the best. And the best is his Mm -hmm. son, Jesus, who is human. (laughs) And (laughs) that was the sacrifice that ultimately covered sin for all time, all creation, all everybody. And so I think that, you know, we are so far removed from this ultimate sacrifice that sometimes we forget what a great and costly gift the life of Christ, the blood of Christ is. And, you know, books like this sort of... We don't have blood in our lives. Like, we are removed from that completely in our daily life in America, unless you happen to be one of those people who actually works in a slaughterhouse, but everyone else... You don't what does Orwell that? keep coming um, back to when she thinks about the gods? The stench of holiness, yep. which is repugnant uh-huh. to her, but also kind of fascinating and beautiful. And what she means is the smell of blood, mm-hmm. blood and fire mixed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I gained a lot from this sort of subtle tweak in perspective that Lewis's choice to put this when and where he does gave me. Yeah. Oh, I could go on about this forever. Sarah, you had a question you wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go in a totally different direction. I have zero yes. segue for this. And now oh, for something completely perfect. different. Yes. Yes. And so <laughs> this is kind of a combination of two of the questions because we already kind of talked about some of question number eight, the quote, the one sin the gods never forgive us is that of being born woman. Ah, and we, I love it. We sort of <laughs> covered this already, but I remember hearing that quote and going whoa <laughs> there are, there were a couple quotes in the book that one and uh the one with the title in it which i hope we're gonna have time to talk about because there's stuff there uh <laughs> but that quote i mean this one like super struck me but then reading through so question number eight was why do you think lewis chose to make orwell a reigning monarch and retell the psyche myth from a queen's perspective what difference does it make to the story and to us that the protagonist is a woman and then that with question number four the one about love. What do you notice and learn about love from this book? How are these lessons perhaps reshaping how you think about love in your own life? So 
it's very interesting that, that it's a woman protagonist, especially, you know, in a Greek mythology or this time period or whatever, that, that a woman protagonist is kind of a weird thing. And I found it really cool to to read the story with a woman being successful and a woman reigning and that Orwell took that position as queen without any hesitation and without any pushback from the people that yeah. there weren't really people saying, oh, you're a woman, you can't lead. The king died. She took over as queen and they're like go for it. you know. And she was very successful. She raised people up. She thought that she loved these people and that they loved her back, at least. And then the one part of the book that really hit me was when Bardia dies. And she struggles mm-hmm. with how to grieve for him because she's not immediate family, but she kind of felt like he was family and thought maybe that he was family to her. But then when she finally is able to meet his widow, she realizes that she was not family at all. She was an employer. Mm-hmm. And that the relationship of her to Bardia and Bardia to his wife was so different. And that the love of her and Bardia was employer-employee relationship. And that Bardia to his wife was husband and wife. And how different that love was manifested in their lives. And how she had zero idea that she was almost using him uh, to mm-hmm. get what she wanted and that Bardia's wife knew that. She saw it and she she was like, how can you not see this? Like, this is literally your relationship, that he would do anything for you, including not seeing me as his wife, like ever, because he's constantly with you. And she's just like floored by this. She doesn't know what to do mm-hmm. because she she thought that it was this mutual mutual respect and love in a relationship and it was so far from that that was a a really like deep conversation that was really interesting it really hit me in in this way of there's two sides to a relationship and the Mm -hmm. other person also has relationships with other people and those people are going to see your relationship with this person in a way that you may not see it all it's kind of like this weird dissociative thing of like looking outside at your own relationships (laughs) i i think that it's interesting that you bring that up. But there are other examples of it in the book, too, that sort of lead me to suspect that Orwell, not that she doesn't know how to love, but I don't know that she knows how to love appropriately. I feel like she, <laughs> yep. she loves somebody. So we see this with Psyche. We see it with the fox. We see it with Bardia. She will latch on to those people and sort of assume that the feeling is mutual. Mm -hmm. And then she'll like get really territorial. Mm -hmm. Like, like she's, she's almost just this jealous person. Like she'll, the people that are in her corner, mm -mm, you don't get to mess with them. Yep. So lonely and and so insecure. Yes. And now I'm thinking, well, look at her childhood trauma. Of course, she's territorial and jealous Mm -hmm. of people because nobody Mm -hmm. loved her the way that she thinks she needs to love other people. Right. Yeah. I don't know, though. I was just going to say that I think you're right that the primary definition of the relationship that she had with Bardia was employer-employee or queen and and subject. (laughs) But I don't think that that means that that there wasn't a mutual sure. respect there. I think Bardia did actually love her. The fox did yeah. love her. They didn't necessarily do that in the best way mm-hmm. either. And, you know, for Bardia, I I heard a number of people saying, you know, he was he was above reproach. He mm-hmm. wasn't above reproach. 
that was he he treated his wife pretty shamefully. <laughs> yeah, it sounds right. like uh, in in how he how he lived that Workaholic. out. He did not have his priorities <laughs> yeah. in order at all, and so so we see all of that. And I guess I was one of the things along those lines that I was struck by is. I think you see this a lot of times that people's greatest strengths are also their greatest Mm. flaws and the way those tip over like into extremes and the things that make us most our, our self and our truest self. And when we are actually at our best are also the things that we then tip over either way into excess or uh, what's whatever the opposite of excess is (laughs) lack. Um, (laughs) When we aren't, at our best, but she is, she's like this amazing, strong character. You're right. Uh, And she's a remarkable queen and led her country to great prosperity and provided for them in, in wonderful ways. But then she does, she, she's got these terrible habits that are the very same things that are what allowed her to do those things also have this shadow side of unhealthy aspects I want to pause just for a minute here and, and provide a little bit of context. For me, I the question, what difference does it make that this is a woman, was a huge one. I've done a lot of <laughs> homeschool mom uh, research into mm. ancient history, and we talked about this some you know, privately, but I, I thought it was something that needed to be brought out. Lewis knew his ancient history and literature. Mm. He mm-hmm. was not, I mean, was not making stuff up here. But the choice to make a woman queen and, and a woman in main character was really revolutionary for him and for the subject matter. This was mm-hmm. a time and place where in Athens, where the fox is from, women were only allowed to leave their homes to go to funerals. <sighs> they didn't get a vote in wow. the Athenian democracy. It was a very repressive culture towards women. We also talked about Egypt, another, you know, contemporary culture Mm. with this time, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we talk now about how Egypt had some reigning queens, like Hatshepsut. We've all heard of Hatshepsut. But if you dig into that story, you realize she was never pharaoh in her own right. She only served as regent for her stepson, Mm. that he had the authority, even though I love this about her, she actually strapped on the false beard of the Egyptian pharaohs and and wore a beard. That's amazing. After she died, one reason she was hidden from history for for so long was that the Egyptians had this had the ultimate cancel culture where they would come through and chisel out the names of the monarchs that they didn't want to remember after their death. And she got that treatment. Another one who did was Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh, which you only found out about, you know, a few decades ago when they started. But they would they would go through and chisel out the names of people and their their inscriptions and everything. So this is the culture that Lewis is writing about or the, the you know, the the time and place. And here we have a queen, a queen who is lauded by her people and by her priests as a very mm-hmm. good queen. Yeah. Now let's look at Lewis's own life. You know, he was an unmarried gentleman for most of his life and had, a, if you look carefully at his writings, you'll see he had a rather complicated relationship with the idea of women. <laughs> you know, one of his first novels, the beginning of the space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, no women at all in that book. And that seems to be where he was kind of most comfortable. <laughs> and then as he starts to incorporate well, <laughs> more female characters, you know, he gets, it, it's sort of a, a there's a growth curve there. That Hideous Strength, the third book in the Space Trilogy, and 
one of my favorite Lewis books of all time. One of the main characters is a seer, a prophetess, well, she has visions, named Jane Studdock. But at the end of the book, the blessing that is given to her is, you will have no more dreams, have children instead. Oh, what? Yeah. And this is a good thing. (laughs) And then we've... Then we've got lines like from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Father Christmas gives Susan and Lucy a bow and dagger for self-defense only. She says, you are not to fight in the war because, quote, battles are ugly when women fight. And yet Orwell was like, right. slaying. Exactly. <laughs> so to go from go from this character yeah. who is yeah. the, the gift to her is not to have these, these visions – to a character like Oral, who has visions and they are her salvation, to go from Lucy, who is not to fight because battles are ugly when women fight, to Oral, who is engaging in hand-to-hand combat yep. for the deliverance of her people. And is good that, at it. And is good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is a massive mm-hmm. leap. And I think wow. several of our readers pointed out that this book was just about the only novel written after Lewis began his romance later marriage with Joy Davidman, Hmm. and that her influence on his perspective on women is obviously palpable here. (laughs) That That is so fascinating. He is Hmm. learning and growing. Not that I would say that a warrior queen lady is necessarily the idea for all of us. I think that (laughs) for many of us, having having children instead is a very beautiful and fulfilling way to live a a God-honoring life. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's really interesting to see the evolution of Lewis's perspective on women that is definitely present in this book. Yeah. I love when she picks up a sword and she's like, I'm I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna be good at it. And there's like no question that she's just gonna she's gonna be a rock star at, you know, being a and warrior. She finds that in the exercise, she gets some actual mental health relief. Yes. <laughs> right? It's so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was rooting. I was rooting for her. I mean, I know this is the worldly perspective of the book, but I was like, yeah, Orwell, you go, girl. Get it. I'm yelling at her. (laughs) Queen boss lady, as someone pointed out. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, you had one more thing you wanted to talk about. And I think that even though we're probably running long, we need to talk about it. This is just going to be a long podcast. Sorry, okay. Not sorry. It's C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Definitely not sorry. Yeah. The title of the book. So... When we picked this book, I was like, till we have faces? What What does that even mean? I don't, huh? And I remember hearing the quote when I was listening. And then I, I tried to go back and find it last night. And I could not find it because I remember where I was walking when I heard the quote. But I cannot <laughs> find it in the book. So <laughs> I've got it. I got it pulled okay. up. Page 335 in the paperback edition. Ah. And I'm just going to preface this by saying, I like this quote. I do not like the title. I don't hmm. think the title tells what it needs to about this book and what the actual message of this book is. And had I been part of the publishing team that brought this out, I would have I would have pushed back a little bit and said, "Dear Mr. Lewis, uh, could you maybe float a half a dozen other oh. titles that we could consider okay, for this?" He did. He had a different title oh, originally, and the publisher oh, was, was like, oh, "We don't like that title." And so he What was the title? I I I also was like, what's up with this? Thank you for looking this up. The this original title was Bareface. 
B-A-R-E-F-A-C-E. Okay, that is even worse. And All right, I guess we should was like, they're going to think it's a Western. <laughs> and so <laughs> he was like, okay, and came up with Till We Have Faces instead. So clearly the conversation it's should have weird. continued, but it wasn't right. actually the original <laughs> title. The, the email would say, uh, <laughs> we're closer. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> getting there. Let's just uh, maybe have coffee and bring a notepad and hash it all out. But all right. So till we have faces, not a great title, but it could have been so much worse. Thank you, Aaron, for looking <laughs> that up. I did not know that. But here is the quote from which the title comes. It's near the end of Orwell's life. Mm-hmm. She says, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot-like been saying over and over, you will not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, I think it's getting That's at part of the problem. I think it's getting at the whole element that that was actually discussed quite in depth in the book club discussion of the veil and the fact that yes. she mm-hmm. hid behind that for so much of and it was both a literal in her case physical veil but also like it's it's the hiding behind the mask and until you are actually honest until you see yourself for who you really are maybe it's maybe it's the the whole concept of the you know some of the uses of the law like to show us our our true self and until you actually see that you don't really see the need for for grace and redemption mm-hmm. yeah i think it gets into the real uh heart of confession. Mm. You know, we mm-hmm. like to think of confession in a religious ex- religious context as, well, I'm going to tell you everything wrong about myself and everything I did wrong. Mm-hmm. But no, the pure definition of confession is to tell the truth. Mm. Now, in the case of sinful human beings, that truth is going to include <laughs> <laughs> the ways in which we are sinful. But to confess is to tell the truth about yourself and about God and about yourself in relation to God. Mm-hmm. And that confession then becomes the bedrock of everything that comes afterwards. I think and that's why we have the Lutheran confessions. That isn't Lutherans telling everything that's wrong. That's mm-hmm. Lutherans telling the truth about themselves and about God and about how those two fit together. And I think that this book is ultimately about learning to make a good confession that we talked about uh, in the in the book club mirrors and the way they show up in the book. There is a physical mirror mm-hmm. that Orwell, towards the beginning of the book, gets rid of, physically removes from her presence because she does not want to see it, to be reminded of what she looks like. And that's an incredibly powerful, powerful symbolic gesture. She covers her face with a veil so that no one can see the truth. But then she begins to encounter other mirrors. She listens to the stories from the priest mm-hmm. of Psyche. She listens to the story of Taryn, the banished eunuch. And she listens to the story of Anset, Bardia's wife. And each one of those offers a reflection 
on her own life and actions that she had not uh, seen before or been willing to see. And then she has the ultimate mirror. She decides that she is going to write down everything that has happened to her and explain to the gods why she's so angry at them and why she has a right to be angry at them. Mm -hmm. But then what she finds is that in the writing of her own life story, it is itself a mirror and one that she can't turn away from because it's part of her. And this becomes the final mirror that helps her to make that good confession. And the one that in the end has her looking in the mirror in the, her vision of, of heaven, standing next to her sister, she looks down in the mirror and sees, for the first time, beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so that 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 faces, mirrors, reflections, it's, it's all vague. If you get the vibe of it, 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 you definitely get it. But if you look straight on it, it you'll always miss it. And that's why the title is kind of vague. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and so whenever there's talk about faces and veiling, I always think of the the blessing that we get at the end of the service, uh, that the Lord would what, make his face to shine upon us. Oh, and, yeah. and the theology of God showing his face or turning his face to us as opposed to looking away and how mm-hmm. when uh, when he shines his face upon us, that is a blessing. Like he is for us in that, that he will give us blessings because he turns his face toward us. And that when you turn the face away, that is like removing yourself. And that was Mm -hmm. running through my head too, Mm -hmm. with all of this face, like showing your face versus not showing your face. And the fact that Orwell is veiled the whole time that she's actually like blessing her people with her wisdom. And yeah, she has to turn her face toward the God before they can be face to face. And yeah, there's a little bit of, um, I think Lewis, like, many Christians struggled with the notion of agency and who's doing the doing when Mm. it comes to salvation and our right relationship with God. And you see a little bit in this quote, that's maybe another reason why I don't like it. How can the gods meet us face to face till we have faces says, I better find myself a face so that I can meet the gods face to face. And that of course is, is not the Lutheran perspective, which says that even, even the faces with which we face God are provided for us Mm -hmm. in christ yep so not a great title but a great discussion question (laughs) (laughs) all this bonus content in this (laughs) (laughs) okay well as much as we time to pick up could go on and on and on (laughs) yeah we should close the book on this one this was so fun i really really enjoyed it And it just makes me more excited for the next book that we tackle together. And like always, we'll do something pretty completely different. (laughs) We were talking about this before we hit record and have a couple of good book club categories lined up. One for now, one for later. And we'll let you look forward to both of those. But for this time, our next book who here is missing travel oh, in a COVID me. world? Yeah. Okay, hands raised. Yes. We need some adventures and we need some books to get us back in the mindset of travelers now that the world is beginning to open up a little bit. With Aaron's help, who has read in this genre as as well and probably done it better than me, we have put together a list of five books that we could consider. And these are all nonfiction travel narratives where somebody's going on a trip or going on a a long vacation and they write about it. And I love this genre and want to read more in it. 
So here we go. Mm-hmm. We've got <laughs> five books and I'll put them all before you. I'll actually give you the titles and then we as our podcast uh, collective will decide which <laughs> one we are reading together. First one is one that, and as with many books, I tend to read the ones I like over and over again. I've read this one a couple of times. <laughs> John Steinbeck. I'm not crazy about his novels. I find them dark and depressing, <laughs> but I love his travel narrative. Travels with Charlie in search of America. Charlie is his dog, Aww. a f- standard poodle. And he was experiencing, John Steinbeck was supposedly at the top of his game. He was like, you know, had written of Mice and Men and uh, uh, The Grapes of Wrath and all, you know, all the books that he's he's most famous for and was really struggling with what do I do next? So he decided to go gather some material. And at the age of 58, he outfitted a camper van. Yeah, no, a camper, not a van. Loaded it up with canned goods and alcohol and said goodbye to his <laughs> wife <laughs> and took Charlie, his dog, on this grand road trip around America to sort of see what America was up to in those days. And what he has written, in some ways, it's kind of dated, you know, because Steinbeck was a man of his time and place. But in other ways, it really gives you a feel for what America was like at a very crucial juncture in its history, that is the 1960s. And it's a great sort of like snapshot of what America looked like then. So that's choice number one, Travels with Charlie. Choice number two, this one is a recommendation of Aaron's a Year in Provence by Peter Mail. And your recommendations, Erin, I will ask you to explain. Yeah. Why should we read this book? This is a memoir of a guy, I believe he's British, who moved to Provence in France and moved into this small little town, small little village. I don't think he was even in a full-on town. And just his <laughs> encounters with this culture that is not his own. And it is, it's hilarious and heartwarming and light and fun. So regardless of whether we do this for a book club, I fully encourage you to enjoy the delightful book on your own. Excellent. And while we're, (laughs) while we're, while you have the microphone, why don't you also take us through Charles Kuralt's America? Yes. Not to be confused with the original Travels with Charlie this is Charles traveling across America. Uh, <laughs> Charles Peralt was a, he was a newscaster. I don't remember. I don't, it was before my time, but so I, I think it was mostly in television, but he might've started out in radio in this book. He is getting ready to retire And one of his major things as his career was he sort of reported on the common man in America. He wasn't covering like big, deep news stories. He was talking about life. And so for when he was retiring, he decided that he wanted to go back and visit places in America at the month when they were at their peak. So he planned Mm. out this whole year 
And he would go and spend a month in each of these different locations and experience it when it was at its best. And so he he goes to northern Minnesota during one of the months, and he talks about loons and the lakes up there. He visits New Orleans. He visits all, all these different locations across America. And it's a delightful, again, just sort of snapshot of average, ordinary life in America. But it's not, again, it's also <laughs> not, it's not set in the 60s. This one, I think, was probably, I don't know when it was written. Maybe 90s. The, okay, it was, came 90s. out in 95. There you go. Um, so Travels so, with Charlie, 90s edition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's fun. Okay. All right. Another strong contender. I've got two more that are kind of uh, off the beaten path. Pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> one is by Suzanne Strumpik Shea. This is called Sundays in America, a year-long road trip in search of Christian faith. Uh, this one came out in 2008. This is a woman who had been sort of a nominal Catholic, but had decided in light of some of the scandals in the Catholic Church and also the death of you know Pope John Paul that she wanted to try something different. But she also knew that Protestantism comes in all shades and stripes. <laughs> so she went on a 52-week road trip to go to a different church, a different kind of church, every Sunday. And so the book that she has put together is really this wonderful panorama of the sort of, let's say, extremes of Protestant Christian belief and practice. So uh, did she go to Joel Osteen's church? She did. Did she go hang out with the Quakers and the Shakers? She did. Did she go uh, sit in Bible class with uh, Jimmy Carter down in Georgia? Yes. Did she go to the cowboy church? Yes. You know, so she it's really a great uh, snapshot of churches that I probably wouldn't visit, but I do want to know about. Her perspective is a little bit more liberal than mine. Um, <laughs> but it is possible to sort that out and really just accept the observations as they are. Really fascinating journey. The final one is completely different. I love, I adore this book. <laughs> I have read it a couple of times, but I realize it's not for everyone. This one is Tim Severin's book, The Brendan Voyage, Sailing to America in a Leather Boat to Prove the Legend of the Irish Sailor Saints. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know. So there's this old text, The Life of St. Brendan, from the 800, 700s, 800s, thereabouts, that seems to show that Irish monks went on this long sailing voyage and maybe uh, touched down on some places that the Vikings would have discovered a few years, a few centuries later. Hmm. But it's based on this idea that in order to even give this idea credibility, one has to prove that they had the technology to sail this far. Oh. And so what Tim Severin did, he and his crew of people, they actually rebuilt from scratch, did research into the ancient boat making practices of the Irish. So cool. Sourced vintage, original vintage style materials, built their ship from scratch, and then sailed it across the Atlantic. Mm. And it is such a fun awesome. voyage. If you if you love practical archaeology, like I do, um, 
<laughs> and <Where's> enjoy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, it's just a great adventure book and one that I love and will probably read again. Tim Severin, if you get into this sort of this sort of thing. He also wrote books like The Sinbad Voyage, The Jason Voyage, where he would look at these sort of literary things and try oh to recreate goodness. the ships from scratch and then mm. follow the original route of the voyage mm. and and write about it. So he's a great adventurer. This was from the 1970s and 80s, though. I don't think he's still going across the sea, but awesome. I'm glad he did. <laughs> awesome. So those are our five books. While you guys are thinking about what you'd like to do, we need to have an honorable mentions list because not every book that we think about makes the cut for something that we would like to share with the entire group. But there are maybe some titles that people might be interested in. So Aaron, I know you had one that you wanted to throw on the runners up pile. Yeah, um, I actually... and fair warning, some of these books, have, there's a reason they're on the runners up pile in terms of <laughs> content. <laughs> so uh, caveat lector, yes. <laughs> reader beware. <laughs> yes. So one of the books that I would throw on the on the honorable mention list, which I didn't even tell you about earlier uh I but it is pack. endurance by mm. lansing okay. it's the story of shackleton's voyage yes! to the antarctic oh, it yes. is gripping and it is non-fiction so it is i believe technically a travel a travel story but um, not a first person travel narrative Correct. He but is still, it's going on my it. list. Exactly. He's anyway. <laughs> awesome book. Fully, highly recommended it. So, endurance. The other one is Extra Virgin amongst the olive groves of Liguria by Annie Hawes. And <laughs> this one, if you enjoy, if you read A Year in Provence and love it, you will enjoy this one as well. This is a story of two sisters, also from, from England, who moved to Liguria, which is a province in Italy, in sort of northern Italy. And they buy a crumbling down manse of some sort and proceed to work to restore it. They've got olive trees on their property, hence the title Extra Virgin in the Olive Groves of Liguria. They have to learn how to harvest olives and again, just engage with the people from this foreign culture to them and hilarity ensues. So also <laughs> a fun amazing. one. All right. I, I have a couple to recommend. Again, caveat lector, be, reader beware. Two of these are by Bill Bryson, who is one of my favorite nonfiction authors, though we see eye to eye on very little in this life. One of them is his book, A Walk in the Woods, which is his memoir of hiking most of the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, <laughs> most of. <laughs> oh, boy. He sets out to hike the whole thing. <sighs> and the other one is his, after years of living in the UK, he's American, but he spent most of his, a lot of his life in the UK. He decided to do a grand tour of most of the United Kingdom. Or am I forgetting? Is it just England? Anyway, Notes from a Small Island is an excellent, hmm. if you are an Anglophile, you need to read this book because he really, really points out some of the most unusual things about living and traveling in England from an American perspective. I know um, some people that need this book. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I remember from that book is his comment on how 
because it's such a, a small island that distances that in America would seem like nothing, like commuter distances, are considered insurmountable oh to goodness. the British mindset <laughs> that like... <laughs> That's so funny. And then the other one is a book by Sarah Vowell called Unfamiliar Fishes, which is all about the history and culture of Hawaii. Ooh. And she, Sarah Vowell writes a lot of history and again, more liberal mindset than, than perhaps mine, but I, I learn interesting things from her. But she let, writes history on location, that if she's going to write Ooh. a book about the history of something, she's going to go to that place and mm. go to all the quirky little museums and historical monuments that she can get she, her hands she's on. She's me! And write down all of her all of her interactions with the with the people that she meets. And it's a really, it's a fun way of, of doing history, but this one is about Hawaii. And I learned so much she calls it the place where manifest destiny got a sunburn. <laughs> oh, so, but again, those books don't quite meet our standards for the book club. So they aren't on our official list, but there are interesting reads if you're looking for something new and different. But now, drum roll, please. I need each of you to vote on one book that we'll be reading. So to review our choices, John Steinbeck travels with Charlie in search of America. A year in Provence, Peter Mail. We've got Tim Severin, The Brendan Voyage, Charles Kuralt, Charles Kuralt's America. Great title. <laughs> and Suzanne Strumpik Shea, Sundays in America, a year-long road trip in search of Christian faith. As usual, I thought before we started recording that I knew what I was going to vote for. <laughs> and then we start reading off what these books are about. And now I don't know. So I just added two books to my Amazon cart. Um, so either way, I'm reading both of them. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, a, what is it? The the first one that travels travels America, with Charlie. Travels with Charlie and a year in Provence. I have a deep and abiding love for France. I actually spent several days in Provence uh, ten years ago, like an hour away from where this book takes place. So I I'm going to read that one anyway. Uh, however, I think for the purposes of this book club and for discussion, I think that travels with Charlie is going to provide us with more in-depth stuff. I think we, I, just by reading the description on Amazon, um, I think we can relate it to a lot of our current events in America and maybe get some really interesting discussion going on. So that one has my vote. But you're I'm not, gonna read you're not wrong, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> Does the dog die love. in the Steinbeck book? It's uh, a good question. It's a fair question. That's oh, a, yeah. yeah. And it's a good question because he comes down with a with a terrible UTI uh, in the south. He doesn't die. He doesn't die. They find okay. a vet on the road who oh. takes care of him. Charlie, then makes my, it that's my vote. The then okay, that's my vote. <laughs> that's right. You're a dog lover. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think that would be a great great one. And I have not read John Steinbeck, so I feel like this will be a nice way that I can read some John Steinbeck. And oh, feel, feel all like, right. Uh, I'm I have growing in my here. in my culture and breath. I am so happy and nervous right now. I love yeah. this book. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna actually have to buy a new copy before book club because I have an old <laughs> copy, but the binding is broken, and I don't think oh, it's gonna funny. it's gonna hold up to another mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. So, all right, this is why we love you, Rachel. <laughs> John Steinbeck travels with Charlie in search of America. This will be an adventure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm really Fantastic. excited for it. Totally okay. different than what we just talked about. Yeah. Completely, completely yeah. 100, totally 
100% totally different. Yep. But that's what I love about the book club. I have eclectic tastes and the fact that I can find people who to come with me on these crazy literary adventures keeps life fun. So, mm-hmm. yes. Yay. And and Travels with Carly is available for an Audible audiobook. I'm we're Facebook chatting on my phone, so I can't check to see if it's in my Libby app or not. So hopefully it is. But <laughs> either way, there is a, a, there is an audiobook version of this one available as well for all of my fellow audiobook lovers. Excellent. We need to wrap this up. This, okay. is, yeah. this breaks the record for our longest podcast yeah. <laughs> for good reason. So <laughs> C.S. Lewis, no better reason. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us to the end, ladies. We appreciate it. Ooh. Yes. Okay. So for everybody who is new to this podcast and has not participated in a book club yet, it is super easy to do. It'll be in our Facebook group. Rachel will post the event when the event is going to happen. All you have to do is find that event, click going, and then all of the discussion will happen within that event. There's no like Facebook lives or particular times that you have to be on Facebook. It's a very virtual event, very easygoing. You can join in as you're comfortable. So we like to keep this kind of casual. If you just want to lurk in the background and read what all the other wonderfully intelligent women have to say about the book we're reading, that is totally welcome. You can do that. Yes. But if you just find that event, click going, then you get notifications whenever people post stuff in that group. It's like a yes. subgroup. Exactly. Yes. And I think with this book, we're going to have a lot of interesting opinions. So oh, yes. I'm looking forward to this because this is right up my alley of stuff I like to talk about. <laughs> so you can join us on Facebook to get all of our posts, all of our episodes and the book club, especially uh, relating to this episode. Join us in that group, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge on Facebook. We are also on Instagram. You can find extra Instagram only content on Instagram. Find us there at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Also, if you post content that you think we might like, tag us and maybe we'll share it in our story too. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge on your favorite podcasting app and on KFUO Radio's new app too for iOS and Android. We just launched a new app for both platforms. Super excited. So you can also download the KFUO Radio app and find our podcast there as well. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm psych E. <laughs> and I too am Psyche. <laughs> Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Uh, We joked about this being a two-hour podcast, and we're only 35 minutes short of that, so...